Before I go on, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me about a couple people. Um, there's this passage in Mark 15, 41. Edwards, girls, can you guys stand up real quick? The, the two daughters, I think it's Amy and Abby. Is that right? Cool. Uh, Mark 15, 40, it says, and there were also women watching from a distance. This is um, at the scene of the death of Jesus. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Hoses, Joseph, and Salome. These women had followed Jesus and ministered to him while he was in Galilee, and there were many other women who had come to Jerusalem with him. This is one of the uh, interesting passages that's, that's always, it always catches my eye when I see someone ministering to Jesus, because we kind of see him as like, he's the, he, I mean, he's the chief minister. He's like the guy, but someone ministering to Jesus. And that word minister, uh, it comes, it comes from this place where it's like serving, ministering. There's, there's a lot of pieces that are, that, that are a part of it. But what I saw was one of the things that I'm reminded to every time I see a passage that talks about ministering to God is I think about the Levites and it was their job, their full-time job to minister to God, basically 24 seven. They were the keepers of, of the tabernacle. Like they couldn't own land, but they got to have some land because they weren't allowed to really work. All their work was, was in the temple ministering to God. And I just felt like the Lord has a call on the two of your guys' life that is so pure. There's such a pure stream inside of you guys. And, I, and, I've, and I've actually had this word stirring in my heart for the two of you for a little bit, but I never see the two of you together in the gathering when I have a chance to have the microphone. And, and I felt like today was the day I go, are the Edward sisters here? And I saw you guys, I'm like, they're both here and I'm grabbing the microphone. <laughs> and, and so I wanted to speak this over you. There's, purity is not just purity for the sake of purity. Purity is purity for the sake of purpose. And the Lord is going to use the, the pure stream that flows through you that he can, he can entrust big things to the two of you because of the way that you are purely dedicated to his purposes. There is, there is such a sweetness and a purity that even he, he would have you minister to him. And so I just want to pray. I want to pray for you and bless this in you and just, and just be encouraged today that the Lord would use you in a very special way because of the purity that you walk in to minister even to him. So Father, we lift up these, these two sisters to you. We thank you for them. We thank you for the way that you've touched their lives. And I also just want to thank you for their parents because there's something about the deposit of parenting that when you see a purity like this, a lot of it has to do with just some amazing parenting. Wow, I'm thankful for your parents in Jesus' name. I bless these two sisters. We bless the hands, the work of their hands. We pray that they would have such amazing impact, Lord, and that they would, they would bring this wave of purity to their generation, a wave of purity that says, I am after nothing like I am after the heart of God. If I could just sit at his feet, what could be better than just to sit at his feet and minister to my king. That there's that cry inside of them, Lord, and I pray that they would impart it to their generation. You would use them in a mighty way to do so. In Jesus' name, let it be so. Amen. Amen. If you know the Edwards sisters, you know that they are such salt. Oh my gosh, salt of the earth. Okay, Bible time. I actually already read the Bible, so... We're gonna read from two primary passages tonight. If you wanna grab your Bibles, these will also be on the Sky Bible. First uh, Kings 19 and Luke chapter nine. Give you guys a little bit of context and then we're gonna read the Bible. The book of First Kings is one of the Old Testament books of history. Did you know that there are many genres within the scriptures that not the whole Bible is the same genre. It's a book made up of many books and actually many genres. So you start with the law and then you move into this, this time of history. So First Kings is one of the Old Testament books of history that discusses 
the life of King Solomon. Do we know who King Solomon was? He was the king that came after David. He was David's son, right? Then after King Solomon, there's the splitting of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. We know that there was a split. And the first several kings that ruled over them. Now, most of the kings that came after Solomon were bad, evil. Yeah, evil, (laughs) really bad. And God speaks through prophets to warn and rebuke them, to go, hey, get your mind right. Follow God. Like if you read the Old Testament and you don't get from the Old Testament that God is a patient God, you need to read the Old Testament again. Because here, here, can I sum up the Old Testament for you? And God was good. And, and the people responded for about a half second to his goodness. Then they forgot him and went and chased after other things. Then God was like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh my goodness, sorry, God. We're totally in it to win it for about a half second. And, and then you can actually just copy and paste that about 15, 20, 30, 40 times. The, the Old Testament is a lot more interesting than that. But if you've read it, you, you kind of know it is a story of the patience of a very patient God. Anytime people are like, oh, the Old Testament God, he's so full of wrath and fury. It's like, no, the Old Testament God is the most patient parent I've ever seen. <laughs> Feel me? Anyway, so the main prophet that God uses in 1 Kings is Elijah. Now in chapter 19, Elijah flees from Queen Jezebel after she threatens to kill him. Right? We know this story, some of us. And God meets him in a cave and he commands him to anoint a new prophet who will succeed him who will do his role. And he has a very similar name. It works out great. This guy's name is Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. I mean, what are the chances? We're gonna start in verse 19. So he departed from the, uh, let's read, let's stand for the reading of the word. I know that might be old school, but I just, I like distinguishing between what I say and what he says. Now, I may say some things that he has said up here, but when I say this, it's for sure that I'm saying what he has said. And I think we should distinguish it because we live in a time where these words have become so offensive and extreme to people that I like to go, now is the time when we are for sure hearing the beautiful, perfect, infallible you can disagree with it all you want, but it doesn't, it doesn't change one bit of its truth, word of God. We're distinguishing it from every other thing that's said tonight. Because I, make, I might make some mistakes tonight from this microphone, but it won't be these words. All right. Starting in verse 19. So he departed from there. That is Elijah. I added those words. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. One more passage, Luke 9. Again, a little bit of context. Gospel of Luke, story of Jesus told by the traveling partner and physician of the apostle Paul. Now, many important elements of Jesus's earthly ministry take place in Luke 9, but there is a bit of a repeating theme of the cost 
of being a disciple of Jesus. You've ever heard that term before, the cost of discipleship? Well, we get a real taste of it right here where Jesus interacts with these three different people and really he warns them of the gravity of following him. We're going to start in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, get ready. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. People are like, oh, Jesus is just so just soft and gentle all the time. And he never says anything that ruffles feathers. And he just, we just need to all be, give me a break. Give me a break. Jesus is, was the most perfect speaker of truth ever. And not everything he had to say went down easy, friends. And by the way, not everything he has to say today is going to go down easy. But we still need to swallow it. Will you pray with me and you can be seated? You will, we'll pray standing up. All right. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your precious word. And I just want to take a minute to elevate your word and just say, my goodness, I'm so thankful in a time of so many strange thoughts and so many strange beliefs and strange doctrines that we can stand upon this word that is unchanging, that is living, that is active, that is still slicing hearts wide open, dividing even between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God, we thank you for your word. We treasure your word. We pray that you would speak tonight in such a beautiful way and that we would be changed by your word. Lord, change my heart even as your word comes out of my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now let's all be seated for real this time. Now for those of you who don't know, I, am, I tend to be fairly cautious and a bit conservative. And I don't just mean that um, politically. I mean that in a more general sense. And I can be a bit risk-averse. Do you know, we know what I mean by that? Like, I, I don't like taking risks. I like things to kind of be in their neat little place. Now, several people make fun of me a little bit because I am a grandma driver. And that's no offense to the grandmas in the house. I love you, grandmas. But what that means, if you haven't heard, is that you, you either like drive at the speed limit or even sometimes a little below. Now, if you're a grandma in here who's got need for speed, praise the Lord. More power to you. That's, but that's not the stereotypical grandma driver. We're all familiar with this term. I don't think I need to explain it as much as I am. And I am a grandma driver. It's legit. I'm like going 34 and a 35 and feeling great about it. And honestly, honestly, I have not gotten any better about it since my son was born. No, actually, it's made me worse. Now, because now I'm just conservatively driving out of safety before. And now I've got my kid in the back, this precious jewel that I'm like, oh, no, no one's going to touch this. I, you, can, you can ride my butt all day long, but I will not speed up for you. I've got more precious cargo. I got more precious cargo than you could imagine in my back seat. But here's the thing. Now I'm a grandma driver, but I, I, I'm a little bit of an angry grandma. 
Because here's the thing, and I think you might know some of you parents are going to feel me right now, because I'm driving conservatively, and I see some people driving recklessly nearby me with my son in the back seat, and now I've got grandma with road rage. <laughs> because I'm going, you are endangering my child. How dare you? How dare you? dare you speed up and pass me like that? What if, what if I would have needed to change lanes, but, but I wouldn't have been able to look back quick enough, even if I changed, checked all my blind spots and my mirrors and you were going so fast and then my son could have got hurt. I have a high value for safety, needless to say. And, um, you know, I've kind of daydreamed sometimes, maybe fantasized a little bit about being kind of dangerous Maybe kind of mysterious. <laughs> but you know, after 30 years, I have come to just this peace inside myself that that just ain't me. I am neither dangerous nor mysterious. I am a straightforward, clarity-seeking, let's make a plan kind of guy. And that is just the way it is. Now, I don't, like, I'm not self-loathing about that. I'm not like, oh my gosh, you know, I wish I could be different. But, but I have come to realize that there can be a dark side to it. You know, we live in a culture that it's like, it's almost like the highest virtue in our whole land is caution. Especially since, I don't know, second week of March, 2020, I don't, something happened. It's like, it's like, Bravery, courage, self-sacrifice, and then caution. Oh, oh, what could be better than being cautious? What could be more loving than being cautious? What could be more like Jesus than being cautious? Now, hopefully you understand that I'm being facetious. There is a dark side to being safe and cautious. Now, I want to read an excerpt from a book called All In by a guy named Mark Batterson. If you've never listened or read from Mark Batterson, I encourage you to. Uh, he's a pastor in, I think, the D.C. area and uh, has, has a strong word. But I want, he, he tells this story from history in one of his books. I want to read it right now. I'm just going to be reading it word for word. On February 19th, 1519, the Spanish explorer, I'm going to say it how it's supposed to be said, and then I'm going to say it white, okay? Because I don't... Okay? Hernán Cortés, but I'm not just going to keep saying like that because then you're going to think I'm pretentious for continually pronouncing it right when I, I'll just say Cortés, okay? And we'll go like that from this point forward, all right? Hernán Cortés set sail for Mexico with an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. The indigenous population upon his arrival was approximately 5 million. From a purely mathematical standpoint, the odds were stacked against him by a ratio of 7,451 to 1. Two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the new, in the new world, yet Cortez <laughs> conquered much of the South American continent. What Cortez is reported to have done after landing is an epic tale of mythic proportions. He issued an order that turned his mission into an all-or-nothing proposition. Here it is. Burn the ships. That was the command. As his crew watched their fleet of ships burn and sink, they came to terms with the fact that retreat was not an option. 
And if you can compartmentalize the moral conundrum of colonization for just a sec, there is a lesson to be learned. Nine times out of 10, failure is resorting to plan B when plan A gets too risky, too costly, or too difficult. That's why most people are living their plan B. It's plan A, no, 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 the next part is they didn't burn their ships. Plan A people don't have a plan B. It's plan A or bust. They would rather crash and burn going after their God-ordained dreams than succeed at something else. End quote. Now history would show, I'm just going to be real. History would show that Cortez did some pretty gnarly things. And I'm not going to paint him in like this rose-colored picture at all. But what I'm saying is that this particular story from his life bears a striking, a striking resemblance to the scriptures that we just read, if you think about it. In, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah commissions Elisha in this really cool kind of mystic way. I mean, imagine if we did it now, if you're like choosing your successor in your ministry or your business and you just kind of throw your coat on him. It didn't say he said anything. He was just like, whoosh. Just lands on his shoulders and Elisha's probably like, totally get it. Yep, I'm in. I'd be like, I'd be like, who, wh who are you and what in the world? Why did you put your jacket on me? It smells funny. It smells like your house, not mine. Now, Elisha accepts the commission because he understands the cultural significance of the cloak. But when he asks permission to say goodbye to his parents, Elijah's response is so interesting. Go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, this phrase is interpreted in various ways by different theologians, okay? But when I read it, I can't help but hear just this little bite of sarcasm. Maybe, maybe something like when we would say, go for it, I'm not going to stop you. Now, however, whichever way that Elijah meant it, let's say he's being completely genuine. He could go back again, for what have I done to you? I don't know how he said it, right? I, I don't get to read the tone. But however he said it, Elisha's, res Elisha's response is so moving to me. Listen to, this, listen to this series of events. It says this, that, well, I'm gonna paraphrase it so it doesn't say this. It's just, I'm gonna communicate the ideas. He returns to the land that he was plowing, uses his plow as firewood to cook his oxen, and then serves the meat of his oxen to the people. With this act, Elisha essentially says, I've made my decision and it's final. The days of Elisha the farmer are over and the days of Elisha the prophetic apprentice have begun. Now Jesus has a similar encounter in Luke 9. His answer to one person's desire to return home to bury his father and another person's uh, desire to go say goodbye to his loved ones is even harder and more straightforward than what Elijah's was. He tells one, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, what it looks like he's saying right here, he's, he's actually sharing part of the revelation of the gospel. He's saying, look, anyone who does not have communion with me is already dead. The ones who are dead, let them bury the dead. But then he even goes harder, I would say, maybe, to this other person who says that he wants to follow him. He caps it off with this doozy of a statement. 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Yikes. That doesn't sound sound very lovey-dovey. Now, both of these stories illustrate a truth that each of us have to grasp as followers of Jesus. Each of us are responsible to grasp this. That the call of God is an all or nothing proposition. There is not a version of Christianity where we are actually able to walk in the will of God for our lives and tote behind us plan B and C and D. Just in case what God actually called us to doesn't quite work out. Now, many of us have come and given our half-hearted yes to Jesus, but our ships are still in the harbor and our plow is still in our parents' closet. Slash closet, I don't think a plow would fit in a closet. Shed, garage, yard, if it's, you kind of have more of a redneck vibe. I, I'm joking, please don't. If, if just, <clears throat> I wasn't planning on that. Every redneck in this house, hey, I love you. You're welcome here. Okay, praise the Lord. Many of us have received prophetic words and we have believed them just enough to be inoculated from actually pursuing them. We get this prophetic word about our life and it's just like this little shot that's just enough. Oh, I taste it, I taste it. Just enough to be put to sleep to never actually do anything about it. Many of us have let fear of failure control our lives because it's, it's been able to control our lives because we have disguised it with a virtuous label like wisdom. I know this because I'm one of these people. See, in certain seasons of my life, I have let what we often call, and man, I never want to hear this statement again, an abundance of caution. Out of an abundance of caution, some. I have let an abundance of caution stop me from walking out the instructions that God has laid out for me specifically. If you're like me, you might need to hear this today, friends. Caution is not a spiritual gift. You're like, but what wisdom is, and wisdom's kind of like caution. You see, wisdom, that word, that Greek word actually is clarity. It is not, it is not, oh, I'm just not going to do that because it's kind of risky. That is not the derivative of the Greek word of wisdom at all. By the way, caution is also not a fruit of the Spirit. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying this to promote reckless living. And if you use this message as a license to be stupid, (laughs) please don't. You're like, Seth told me to burn the ship, so I'm buying all the lotto tickets. No. (laughs) Just stop it. Don't intentionally hear what I am not saying. Now, this is what I felt like I heard the Lord say this week. 
I heard him say this, don't tell them to throw caution to the wind. It's not, it's not, there's never a place for caution. It's not caution has no place in our lives. It's not caution is in itself a bad thing. No, he said, don't tell them to throw caution to the wind. Tell them to remove caution from the throne. Y'all, y'all, in this country we live in right now, in the Western world, caution has become a golden calf. It is an idol. And if it's in the wrong place in order, it's bad news because you might be worshiping it. You see, caution is not nearly as high. I'm not saying it's not a biblical value because it's in there somewhere, right here or somewhere. It's not nearly as high of a biblical value as it is a postmodern Western value. And if you don't agree with me, please read your Bibles, friends. That, you know how many problems we could solve in our country if just every person in this room just read their Bible? We could change the world if this room would just read the Bible every day. What if, we, what if this whole room read the Bible every day? Dude, North Idaho wouldn't look anything like it does right now. God's word is full of stories about people who threw out every backup plan and every safe bet and followed God wholeheartedly, no matter the risk, no matter the cost. You should read it sometime. And we may not like it. Oh, this one, this one might. I just felt like this was the email phrase. This is the one. I just kind of felt like I got this. Bing. I can just see the little red badge right now. Oh my. We may not like it, but God has some very hard words for the cowardly. If you've read like Revelation, oh my goodness. Now I'm not calling anyone here a coward. Let me make that clear. I'm not accusing anyone of being a coward in this room, but I am telling you that I have been guilty of cowardice. Do you feel me what I said? Is it really in you? You're not gonna email and said, hey, I felt like you accused me of being a coward. Not gonna hear what I didn't say. See, I've given it permission. I have given cowardice permission to stay around by making it seem virtuous in my life. We can do that, you know. You can make very, very ugly things sound pretty. See, the, see language is this really interesting thing. It is so easy to manipulate. Because I go, oh, I'm just trying to be wise. I'm just trying to take care of my family. See, in the Western world, many of us have become so addicted to safety and security, we don't even realize that that's where our faith and our trust is, is safety and security. Oh, not me, Seth. <clears throat> My faith and trust are in God alone. Can I ask you this? How many backup plans do you have in place in case what God called you to doesn't pan out? How meticulously have you insulated your life from failure? Let's be real. 2023, United States of America. How well insulated are we? In an effort to make our lives fail-proof, which sounds so nice, fail-proof, wow, can't fail, so good. I'm concerned that we have unintentionally made our lives faith-proof. Because you don't need it. 
because you just you built you build a life that faith is kind of here or there. It's like I don't need to believe God for my next because I already made it happen. And if I didn't make it happen, I got this thing in place just in case that doesn't. And then if that doesn't, and I got this place and really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it happen one way or another. And then this is what we do. We comfort ourselves, believing that we are people of faith, justifying a cautious lifestyle by recounting all the ways that we have obeyed God by avoiding sinful behaviors. I'm a person of great faith. And it reminds me of this guy who's a rich young ruler. Oh yeah, all of those I have followed since my youth. But obedience to God is not just obeying when he says no, it's obeying when he says go. Feel me, church. I'm not just trying to rhyme. Obedience to God is not just avoiding the baddies. I would say that's not even primary. Most of us think the first command from God is don't, don't go and eat of that tree. The first command is be fruitful. Go and fill this thing up and have dominion. Go. The command of God is primarily not no. It is go. Except, and we can get all, we can feel so good in our little comfy everything. We'd be like, well, I have not committed adultery and I've not murdered and I've not lied. And I've, well, you have lied, but. <laughs> and you have looked upon the opposite sex with lustful intent in your heart. And so you have committed adultery in your heart. But, <laughs> See, there are people in this room who have already received your go calling from God, but you have been dragging your feet, maybe for years, worried that it's too big or too risky or that you don't have what it takes. I gotta tell you something right now from my own personal life. I used to think it was presumptuous to simply obey the call of God on my life. And you're going, how, how could that be, Seth? Because I recognized at one point that the call of God on my life was going to make some people feel uncomfortable. And I used to, I used to go like this toward the call of God on my life because I go, people are going to think I'm arrogant. People are going to think I'm prideful. People are going to think I'm presumptuous. But think about the logic of this. To, for me to be so deceived by the, de, by the deception of the enemy that I don't obey God because I think obeying God is presumptuous. What? No, some of you need to feel that right now because there's some people who are hiding behind this thing that they're calling humility and it ain't that, it's fear. You're going, no, I'm just, I just, I'm not stepping in. I'm just waiting for God to make every little thing happen for him to sell the, send the helicopter and the boat. And <laughs> See, I believe that the Lord would come to you today and remind you of this. He never commissions someone without also empowering them to fulfill the commission. And you're like, yes, okay, good. That's good news. Yeah, he, God is not going to tell you to do something that he isn't going to give you the tools to do, the ability to do. Some of you need to feel that because a lot of you are reading the scriptures all defeated. Going, you're reading these things that Jesus said and that Paul said and that John said and that all the other guys said. And you're going, oh, I just feel like this is a beat down session because I can't do any of this. But the thing is God's going, yeah, I, I, it's like he does this. He's like, he's like, drive the car and here are the keys. Go take the car and here are the keys. And we're going, I can't take the car. I don't have the keys. I don't have the keys. I can't take the car. I don't have the keys. He goes, hey, here are the keys. Go drive the car. Here are the keys. 
But here's the, here's the thing. The empowerment comes in the obedience. You can't just sit on your dregs and say, God never empowered me. God never empowered me. He told me to do stuff and he never gave me the ability to do it. That's because you never did it. You didn't obey. And so the empowerment wasn't there because the empowerment is in the obedience. You got to feel me, church. Okay. Can you repeat after me? Seth's not mad at me. Seth loves me. Amen. I'm glad we got that out of the way. This is not a rebuke. It is a reminder from a loving father whose heart is towards you and so deeply desires for you to live in fullness. Now, I think about three quarters of the room missed that because they were distracted by the musicians, and that's okay. I love the musicians. I know how hard it is to walk onto this stage and not distract people. I'm going to say it again. This is not a rebuke. This is a reminder from a loving father whose heart is oriented towards you and for you, who desires so deeply that you would walk in fullness. He does not want to crush you. He wants, he wants you to flourish. And every word that sounds hard right now, if you can see it through the lens of how much God loves you and wants the very, 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 very best for you, it cannot re be received as a painful thing. It's, it's a gift. And just like when I look at my, I would look at my own son with a broken heart if I knew that he was living in fear because he didn't think that I was gonna have his back or be with him along the way once I told him that he could do something. There is a father that is so much better than me who's standing before you today. He's going, I've got you. Be strong and courageous. Just like I was with my servant Moses, I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. I will never leave you or forsake you, but be very strong and courageous. Just trust me. Now, for some of you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for some vulnerability tonight. Is that okay? I do not want you to walk out of this room and feel a slight bit of encouragement and go keep living mediocre. And I'm not saying everyone in the room is living mediocre. Some of you are like, you're like, you're killing it. You're doing, you're, you're, you are walking, you're stepping in that fullness. But I have, I, you got, I got to know that there are a lot of people in this room who are not walking in the fullness of God. Okay. And, and just to be real with you, I don't think that I am yet, but I sure am I sure am taking steps toward it, okay? And I want you to, too. For some of you, tonight is your night to burn the ships. For some of you, tonight is your night to cook the oxen. For some of you, tonight is your night to take your plow and make it firewood. For some of you, tonight is your night to get rid of plan B, C, D, and all the other ones. And it's your night when you're really honest. There are many people in this room, you know what God has said over your life. 
but it's so hard for you to believe it and then actually obey it because it just feels too big for you. But because it is too big for you in your flesh, but it is not too big for you in the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, which he loves to give you. He loves it. He loves to give you fullness. He loves to give you his spirit. He loves to give you himself. For some of you, that that is you tonight. But I believe that there's some of you who want to put your stake in the ground tonight and actually want to make a decision. I'm not talking about salvation right now. I'm not talking about you don't know Jesus and today you just are realizing that Jesus is the King of Kings and that we're all going to bow and so you might as well bow today. That's not what I'm saying right now. Although that's very good. And we are going to give an opportunity for that. So if you don't know Jesus, tonight's your night. But what I'm saying is that there's a lot of people who've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you've been, you've been walking with him with half your heart because you've been, you've been obeying him in the nose, but you have not been obeying him in the goes. And there's a go upon your life that has felt overwhelming, but you know, and it's stirring inside your heart, it's burning, and you know tonight's your night to make that commitment and to get rid of all your backup plans. And so I'm gonna ask you, we're gonna sing to the Lord here in a minute, but I wanna ask you to, if that's you tonight, and you know that this is the time to put your stake in the ground, I wanna pray for you and bless you because I've been undergoing a transformation of, him, of, of God just absolutely renewing my mind and wrecking my mind in this area of how many disobedient things I have let stay and called them virtues this whole false humility, false wisdom thing, and he's tearing them off of me, and I'm in the midst of it right now, and I wanna throw it at you. Now, I'm not talking about some weird thing that you've seen on TV where it's like, I'm not gonna like, no, I'm not gonna talk about that. I'm just talking, I'm talking about the spiritual principle of impartation. He's doing something in me right now where he's tearing down wrong mindsets. And I I feel like I'm able to step more into the fullness of the call on my life. And I simply want to pray that that would transfer to you. Is that okay? That's impartation, that's biblical. It's all over the New Testament. So if that's you tonight and and today's the day you wanna make that stake in the ground, you wanna burn your ships, I'm gonna ask you to stand, but not out of obligation, only if it's real for you. Only if it's real for you, don't stand because your buddy stood. Stand because you know tonight's your night to destroy the backup plans, to cook the oxen, to cook the plow, burn the plow, burn the ships. Awesome. Okay, will you put your hands somewhere, something like this, some kind of receptive posture? And I'm just gonna pray right now. I'm just gonna pray right now for y'all. And I'm gonna believe God's gonna do something. He's gonna do something supernatural and I can't quite explain it, but his thoughts are a lot higher than mine. Father, I bless these people right now who are standing with their hands out in this posture of reception. And I bless their posture right now that they would receive from you and that they would make today the day where they throw out all the backup plans. They burn the ships. They burn the plows. They cook the oxen. And they say, no turning back now. No turning back. 
Lord, I pray that you would meet them in this moment of faith in this prophetic act, act of standing and saying, yes, today's my day to do that. I pray right now that you're meeting each one of them one by one. You're meeting them. You're meet, he's meeting you. He's meeting you right now. He's meeting your faith right now. He's meeting your faith with his power right now. He's meeting your faith with his power right now. He does not commission without empowering. He does not commission without empowering. And the empowering is coming in the obedience as you take the step of faith right now. I bless every commitment, every stake in the ground. I bless every burning of the ships in this house tonight in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Lord, we seal it. We say yes and amen. No more backup plans.